Have you ever been to a cemetery so old you could just feel the ancientness of it? A visceral feeling of times long past and customs long gone. A burial place used since the 1400s with standing gravestones from the 1600s and some even marked with musket shot. An area that was used for tournaments, battle, and the execution of witches before it was a cemetery. They say that dead men tell no tales, but I'm inclined to disagree. Today, we're exploring the cemeteries of Stirling, Scotland, and we will discover some of what lies beneath the stones, bones, and shadows. Files and friends, I'm Lachelle, your host, and I'm here again with my co-host and friend, Callum. Welcome, Callum. Good to be here. Thanks for having me again. Thank you for doing this. I'm so glad that you could tell me just a little bit more about your amazing country, Scotland. Now, if you guys haven't yet listened to the episode before this, we talked about the history of Stirling and the amazing Stirling Castle. Today, we're going down the hill to the cemeteries, my favorite part. <laughs> so the castle is up above everything on a big volcanic outcrop. And if you look down from one of the sides, you can see the old kirk and kirkyard sprawled out down below. As my husband Brad and I looked down at all the gravestones we were both like we want to go down there <laughs> and we ended up with some free time after touring the castle to explore the town of sterling and so while the others did just that we hightailed it down the hill to the kirkyard which if you don't know <laughs> in scotland the church is a kirk and so therefore the church graveyard is a kirkyard they call the kirkyard the old town cemeteries because they are actually a collection of five cemeteries all right next to each other. I didn't even know that there were five. It just seems like one really yeah. big cemetery. All of them are just nestled around the, the Holyrood church and across and down from the castle. The beautiful medieval parish church of Stirling is called the Holyrood. Holyrood is named for a relic believed to be a piece of the cross that Jesus was crucified on. So rood means pole or piece of the cross. Cool, so holy rood means church of the holy cross. Yep. So the original holy rood kirk was built in 1129, but was burnt in a fire in the 1400s. But even so, after it's being rebuilt, and only the other building older than the kirk, is Stirling Castle itself. Mm. There are no 12th century tombs though. For most of Stirling's history, people who could afford such memorials were laid to rest in layers beneath the church floor. This was a very common practice all over Europe. 
The practice ceased in about 1623. The official reason to avoid the great abuse and profanation of God, his house and the burying of his dead corpses. But the actual reason is that the stench within the kirk had become unbearable. <laughs> so this forced the rich oh. and elite to have to be buried outside of the kirkyard with everyone else. <laughs> Even then, people vied to be close to the church as possible. There were so many politics about burials back then. You wouldn't even know that. We've been to a lot of abbeys and cathedrals where the stones and their epitaph and everything is on the floor. Mm -hmm. Have you seen that yeah. in lots of places? Yeah. So I just, yeah, I can't imagine your loved one or someone you knew or you, you know, being buried under the church yeah. floor. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> The church is amazingly beautiful inside. The nave is impressive, but the most remarkable part of the kirk is the original oak-beamed roof held together entirely by oak pegs. Mm -hmm. So no nails, none of that. It is one of very few medieval timber roofs that still survive in Scotland. The timbers still carry the marks of the adzes used to shape them 600 years ago. It's amazing, isn't it? Mm. I used to work construction, and I remember complaining, and I had a nail gun. <laughs> now, oh. these guys were constructing yeah. these huge castles yes. and kirks and all of that, you know, monuments, and they didn't have a dozer or a digger or a nail gun or, you know, yeah. nails. Pretty amazing. It goes back to the amazing, like, foresight when it comes to war and how talented and mm -hmm. um, with their tactics of guerrilla warfare and things like that. Mm -hmm. And then even with their intellect with building places like this as well, it's just, it's pretty amazing when you're there and witnessing it all, you know, with your eyes. And you see pictures of even castles in Scotland from so long, you know, hundreds and hundreds mm -hmm. of years ago that are ruins, you know, they don't have the roofs and stuff, but it's just amazing that they were built so well that yeah. they literally lasted for hundreds of years. Yeah, absolutely. And the things that they could do, the Gothic churches, and I'm just always in awe of what they did. So the Church of the Holyrood can lay claim to being the only active church in the United Kingdom, apart from Westminster Abbey, to have held a coronation. Mm. Mary, Queen of Scots, had been removed from the throne and had been executed. She had been persecuting Protestants having had many put to death. Her unwise marital and political actions provoked the rebellion amongst the Scottish nobles, forcing her to flee to England. And history says that she had a secret plot to have her cousin, Queen Elizabeth of England, killed so that she could take the throne and rule over all of Britain. That secret plot was found out though, hence her removal and her execution. Mm -hmm. She was beheaded and mm. she is buried underneath the floor in Westminster Abbey in London. There you go. <laughs> so her 13-month-old son took the throne as King James VI of Scotland. His coronation took place within the Holyrood Church in Stirling. King James VI of Scotland would eventually become King James I of Britain, and he was the only one that appointed the committee that produced the King James translation of the Holy Bible. Quite a dramatic from what was happening just a short time prior under Queen Mary. And yet, 
King James had his own demons, mm -hmm. if you will pardon the pun, and brought a terror of his own during his reign. He became utterly convinced about the reality of witchcraft and its danger to him, leading to trials that began in 1591. James was convinced that a coven of powerful witches was conspiring to murder him through magic and that they were in league with the devil. In 1597, James published his study of witchcraft entitled Demonology. Mm. When James became King of England in 1603, the book was published in London as well. He attended many witch trials and executions and was totally obsessed with ridding Scotland and England of all of its evil witches. It seems kind of strange to me that the man who brought the Bible to the people also brought about a book about witches and brought death and terror to so many. It is said that there could have been up to 4,000 people who were tried and executed in Scotland alone. And I'll also say that the majority were women. But the majority were witches. I'm joking. <laughs> in Stirling itself, 33 people were accused over the course of the 17th century. Unfortunately, there are gaps in the historical records, so while we know the names of the majority of accused witches, we don't totally know if they were executed after they were tried. But researchers at the University of Edinburgh <laughs> suggest that 67% of all those accused in Scotland were executed, so some of Stirling's witches would have been burned at the stake in this very area. In 1615, in Stirling, Helen Nicol and her daughter Isabel Atkin, who lived on what is now King Street in Stirling, were accused of witchcraft and using charms. Isabel eventually confessed to charming and her mother was then implicated. But the result of their trial was not recorded. In 1659, 49-year-old Stirling resident Bessie Stevenson confessed to being with Satan for 24 years. Hmm. Bessie practiced folk healing and even admitted to using the nearby St Ninian Well waters to heal people as well as curse them. That wasn't such a strange thing in those times though, right? Rivers, streams, and wells had long been associated with deities and water itself linked with life. And water from these wells was often assumed to have healing properties. Mm. But she was imprisoned in Stirling where her confession was extracted and she was tried at the toll booth. She was found guilty, but her fate was not mm. recorded also. Mm. In 1677, a woman named Mary Mitchell was accused of murdering two boys by drowning them. She was also imprisoned in the toll booth in Stirling. She had been what they call being pricked. An accused witch's body was looked over for any marks. A devil's mark was supposed to have been left on the body of the witch after they had made that pact with the devil. They looked until they found any marks or a blemish, rash or mole. I would have been in big trouble because with my fair skin, I have a variety of all of those things. So if this mark was pricked by needles and was not painful or did not bleed, then that person was declared a witch. Well, that makes perfect course, sense. Yes. 
all this time we were giving Scotland credit for their intelligence and strategies <laughs> and then they're like, well, if it... <laughs> Let's blame it on King James. <laughs> so during that process, Mary was held in prison for 15 weeks, but she was one of the lucky ones. Her trial, she was found not guilty and was released. I read that many times the accused were terribly tortured and sometimes so were their innocent families. And so the only way to make it stop was to make a false confession, which I guess I can understand. I mean, bring in one of my kids and start to torture them and I would probably to admit to whatever. So that was a really crazy time in Scottish history. In America, we had pretty much the same thing with the Salem witch trials in colonial Massachusetts between 1692 and 1693. More than 200 were accused of practicing witchcraft and 20 were executed. Mm. Much smaller number than in Scotland, it sounds like. <laughs> I guess it was some kind of terrible fad. Many older headstones had symbols of mortality. Back before the time that professionals just came and removed a loved one's body from the hospital or our home after their deaths, they had to deal with it themselves. Now we have professionals that take care of everything and mostly we just make the arrangements. We don't have to do a single thing for them if we don't feel comfortable with it. We can avoid the whole thing. Remember that in times past, baby and children mortality rates were much higher and people didn't usually live until old age. And most people died in their homes. Their loved ones would wash and dress and lay out the body on their kitchen table, and family, friends, and neighbors would come by and visit and have a wake and talk about the one who died. They would also be buried within just a day or so. People were very much used to death, and it was still terrible and painful, but happened all the time to everyone. They knew that death comes to all and would come to them as well. This was reflected in their choice of what they put on their gravestones. And as gravestones were moved outside into the graveyards and kirkyards, there was more room for creativity and expression. But at a time with Puritan ideals, people thought that only the elect could make it to heaven, and that the rest of us were just doomed to live and die and rot. That was it. So they were a pretty gloomy bunch. So in graveyards during the 16 and 1700s, you will see many emblems of death. To us at this time, they seem very dark and dreary, but to them, it was reality. It was very common to see death's head or a skull or a skull and crossbones, sometimes a skull gnawing on a femur and sometimes whole skeletons. It is a reminder that there is literally no escape from death and that they should be prepared for it. Many times at the top of a stone will read, here lies the body of, and then the name. Somewhere between the 17 and into the 1800s, we start to see a little shift in attitudes and people began to have a little hope. Then we start to see the skulls with wings attached with the meaning that life is fleeting. And the words were more like, here lie the mortal remains of, then we see a change to more of a human face with wings called a soul effigy. After this in the Victorian era and the introduction of garden cemeteries, it changes again to a winged cherub. 
and the words change to something more soothing and poetic, like gone but not forgotten, or sacred to the memory of. Another popular motif in Scotland is called the green man. He looks like a face, but to me kind of like a cloud blowing out a breath of wind. Some say a woodland creature. It's believed he represents new life that springs from death. Like in winter, things die back and are reborn in the spring. So also man die so that he can rise again. We also see the winged hourglass and that's to remind people that time is fleeting and will run out on you as well. Let's get to the cemeteries. Holyrood's Kirkyard was one of the original burial grounds in what is now known as Stirling's Top of the Crown. Burials in the Holyrood Kirkyard date from as far back as the 1400s, though there are no standing headstones that date that far back. A few from the 1600s, but mostly all of them are from the 1700s. Hmm. There were as many as 1,500 documented burials there. In fact, it got so crowded that at one point, bodies were exhumed to make way for new burials. What? Yeah. My question, um, where do they put the bodies <laughs> that a, they dug up? That's a good question. <laughs> well, I don't know the answer to that. But in 1855, the Burial Ground Act made it illegal to exhume bodies for newer burials. Nice. This led to the creation of Valley Cemetery adjacent to Holyrood, Mars Walk Cemetery, Drummond Pleasure Ground, and Ladies Rock Cemetery were created soon after. So all those cemeteries that you mentioned make what looks like one large cemetery underneath the shadow of Stirling Castle and adjacent to the Holyrood Church. Here's some of the prominent features of the cemeteries. The first is Ladies Rock. Ladies Rock is a little raised promontory that sits above a hollow that was used for tournaments and sporting events throughout the reign of the Stuart Monarchs. The ladies of the royal court used to go up on top of the rock and use this convenient vantage point to safely watch the events. It now divides the old and new cemetery. I have a photo of Ladies Rock and all the other cool things we're discussing today on our website if you want to follow along. So the next interesting feature is the pyramid. And yeah, there is a full-on pyramid. pyramid. Yeah. <laughs> it's enclosed by wrought iron railings with stone steps flanked by two stone globes. At one time, they were surmounted by bronze eagles. The pyramid form was popular and represented stability and endurance. It's on a raised plinth and has a set of steps leading to it. Each of the faces are very similar. On one face is a circular marble plaque, the text of which is very worn and some of the lower part is readable. It refers to key aspects of the development of the Presbyterian Church. A Bible and confession of faith were sealed into an inner chamber in the pyramid. Pyramid was built by William Drummond in 1863. William Drummond was a land surveyor and nurseryman whose immediate descendants were a well-known family in Stirling. They were responsible for a wide range of activities both locally and nationally. These included the establishment of an agricultural museum in the 1830s 
an extensive seed and nursery business, exploration in Africa, and the Drummond Tract Enterprise, the foremost 19th century publisher of religious pamphlets. William was the eldest son of the well-known Sterling family, which included Peter Drummond and his nephew, Henry. He was one of the instigators of the Valley Cemetery, and his obsession with religion can be seen in the Martyr's Monument and the Star Pyramid, also known as Salem Rock. He commissioned the Star Pyramid from William Barclay in 1863. There are white marble Bibles incorporated around the base and the names of religious tracts. The pyramid is dedicated to all those who suffered martyrdom in the cause of civil and religious liberty in Scotland. William planted a garden around the pyramid, complete with trees and plants. He also paid for five of the six statues seen in various parts of the graveyard and donated trees to be planted around the National Wallace Monument. There are no gravestones within Drummond Pleasure Ground other than William Drummond's sarcophagus to the northwest of the pyramid, polished gray granite, inscribed, born 14 February 1793, died 25th November 1888, on its stepped base. Hmm. Martyr's Monument is a statue grouping of three figures that represent an angel keeping watch over two young girls, one of whom is reading a Bible to the other. The reader is Margaret Wilson. The listener is her younger sister, Agnes. Good old Scottish name. <laughs> they are known locally as the Mary Martyrs. The statues are enclosed in a white cupola with glass panels. The story behind it is that the two girls were the daughters of Gilbert Wilson, a committed Episcopalian. Despite this, the sisters were followers of the Covenanters, an extreme Presbyterian group strongly opposed to the Anglican reforms of Charles II. Margaret and Agnes, aged 18 and 13 respectively, were arrested for their beliefs and along with Margaret McLaughlin, an elderly neighbour, tried for and found guilty of the high treason. All three were sentenced to death by drowning. Agnes's father was able to buy her freedom, but despite a temporary reprieve, the others were led to a high point below high water mark on the treacherous Solway Firth, tied to stakes and let to drown in the incoming tide. Margaret McLaughlin, by then in her late 60s, had no resistance to the powerful current and soon succumbed to its force. Margaret Wilson was offered her freedom but refused to relinquish her convictions and died for her faith on May 11th, 1685. Oh, that's so sad. The marble group was commissioned from Handyside Ritchie, the sculptor of all the statues in the graveyard of William Drummond, a brother of Peter Drummond. It was erected in 1859. So there's a resonance wall mounted the largest in the Holyrood Kirkyard, and it is a very elaborate memorial of family founded by John McCulloch, former provost and noted merchant of Stirling, and his wife Agnes, although her name does not appear in it. The wall monument has ornate strap work, embols of mortality, cherubs with swags and fruit mm -hmm. and flowers, and inscriptions help us to see the typical attitudes to death in that era. Mm -hmm. Much of the original inscription is in poor condition, but the metal plaque fixed to the side of the monument gives a clear transcription. The oldest and one of the most unusual stones in the cemetery is called the service stone. 
This rectangular slab is topped by a semicircular piece of stone, and the whole thing is carved with a variety of scrolls and strap work showing angelic figures and tools. There's also a face covered as if in horror, pointing to a sundial and the hourglass on the ground. Children are often intrigued by the stone as the base looks like a coffin covered by a mort cloth, which is pulled to the side, revealing a skull. Mm. At the sides and bottom, there are little hands and feet as if there was a body underneath. <laughs> John Service erected the stone in memory of his father, John Service, and his mother, Bessie Ewing. The inscription is now obscured and damaged, particularly by a number of circular dents believed to have been caused by musket fire. Which, taking into account the date of 1636, would suggest that this occurred during General Monk's siege of Stirling Castle in 1651, or the Jacobite assault of 1746, where this graveyard became a battlefield. The next stone is enclosed by a low parapet is one of four stones all erected for members of the Gibb family. The panel bears a shield charged with the name Gibb. The original dedication appears to have been erased and a new inscription commemorating James Gibbs can be seen. There's a pick, mallet, and chisel, and that indicates a miner or quarryman. A later Gibb descendant was a merchant of some standing indicated by the reverse four, which can be seen on the broad slab stone nearby. Many of these oldest stones do not have the names on them. To them in those days, it would have been considered very vain to put mm. your name on the stone. It didn't matter who you were, but what you did. So emblems of their trades were put on their tombstones. The other thing that you see a lot of are emblems of death, like skull and crossbones, winged hourglasses that remind people that time is fleeting and will run out on you as well. Grave robbing has always been something that happened, but during the 19th century, this practice was used for the medical profession. Prior to the Anatomy Act of 1832, Medical institutions were only allowed to dissect corpses that came from the gallows. However, because there was such a growth in the number of schools that taught the sciences, there was an increased demand for bodies. Resurrectionists, or body snatchers as they were more commonly known, made it their profession to supply schools with the much needed materials, shall we say? Mary Stevenson was the widow of Joseph Witherspoon, a sterling stonemason, and she had died of dropsy on the 16th of November, 1822. She was 55. And dropsy is another name for edema or abnormal swelling of tissues from a buildup of fluid and was synonymous with heart failure. She was laid to rest three days later in a lair belonging to her brother-in-law, Helping at the graveside was a man named James McNabb. He was the town's gravedigger. Two or three evenings later, James McNabb opened up the lair again. He and a friend named Daniel Mitchell dug up the body of Mary for dissection, 
by John Forrest, a local medical student. Within a day or two, someone noticed that the earth looked disturbed and was sunken at Mary's grave. And as they moved the dirt and earth, they found a rope. And as they dug deeper, they found her coffin broken and her body missing. Her clothes were tossed into the grave. The people of Stirling were horrified. They had heard of this practice in Edinburgh, but not in their area. They set out to find the body snatchers. McNabb and Mitchell were not very successful in laying low, and it was noticed that they had plenty of cash to spend at the local tavern. And being the local grave digger, it all added up, and they were soon caught. They were brought before the judiciary court in the courthouse behind the toll booth. The indictment also contained the name of John Forrest, who failed to show up. Apparently, by this time, he had fled to the continent. This meant that the indictment was suspended and the two men were sent down to their cells. This was meant to only be a temporary measure and the two men should have been recharged of the crime without John Forrest. But the authorities failed to do this and later in the evening, the jailer released the two men. When word of their release got out, a mob armed with sticks and stones gathered outside of McNabb's house. The town's sole policeman bravely marched through the mob and took McNabb back to prison, mostly for his own safety. The other guy, Mitchell, had fled over the rooftops just before the mob broke in. He too was caught and escorted back to prison with the assistance of a magistrate and soldiers from the castle. They were armed with muskets and bayonets, but unfortunately, many of the mob were drunk and very upset. The soldiers formed a line across jail wind, and as the mob surged forward, one of the soldiers fell. A shot was fired, and then a full-scale riot ensued. Stones were thrown, sticks and clubs were used, many more shots were fired, rifle butts and bayonets were freely used, and a running battle took place up and down St. John Street. And report is, without serious casualties, which sure seems hard to believe with all of that going on. What happened to McNabb and Mitchell is unknown. Although without more evidence and without the body, the case against them was eventually dismissed. As for the medical student, John Forrest, that escaped to the continent, he was given a criminal record and outlawed in Scotland for his part in the grisly deed. In July 1824, he received a royal pardon from King George IV, although the reason for this is unknown, and he was able to return to his medical studies. He is recorded as having become a qualified practitioner at the Royal College of Physicians in Edinburgh. In 1825, he received his doctorate and went on to practice at St. Ninian's Hospital. He returned to England in 1850, and in 1859, he became honorary physician to Queen Victoria. So back to Mary's headstone. It had already been placed before she died. I guess it was meant to be for her brother-in-law or someone in his family. So the scene was already engraved on the stone. But to have it look like a skeletal robber pulling a body out of the grave is quite a weird coincidence. It's interesting to note that most body snatchers would steal only the corpse. As you remember, her clothing was tossed back into the grave. 
There were laws prohibiting the theft of possessions like clothing or jewelry, but there were no laws against taking a body. Apparently a dead body belonged to no one. A human body in good condition could get up to 10 shillings or a few months wages. Especially wanted was the bodies of women and children. Measures were taken for a time to keep bodies safe from this. They believed if your body was taken and desecrated this way that your body and spirit wouldn't be able to be united on Resurrection Day. So they used a device that was called a mort safe. They were designed and made by local blacksmiths and consisted of an iron frame that was placed over the coffin and padlocked. Once the body began to decompose, the grave diggers, well, the, the good grave diggers that worked for the cemetery, not the stealing kind of grave diggers, they would open the graves and remove them, the mort safe, unless the family had bought one specifically for their loved ones, in which case it stayed buried with them. So in essence, the mort saves were used to allow the body to decompose enough so that the medical students would find them of no use in their dissection rooms. So once they decayed enough, they could remove the mort safe from off the top of the coffins and fill back in the grave with dirt and all would be okay. It is said that the ghost of the pink lady that we talked about during our last episode could actually be that of Mary Stevenson Witherspoon. And her ghost is sometimes accompanied by the smell of roses, which had been her favorite scent, rose water. You might could explain this away if there were rose bushes in the cemetery, but there are not. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate your input, and hopefully we can talk about Scotland some more another time. Absolutely. I, I just love seeing the ancient tombstones and seeing the, the moss growing all over these faded tombstones, you know, and thinking Same. about the, the lives that have come and gone. And the thing that I love about Scotland the most is that the tombstones that you see are people that were willing to die for the freedom to have their own little bit of farmland. You know, mm -hmm. all the people that were fighting for Scottish independence against the English, mm -hmm. or against the Romans, or against the whoever mm -hmm. else. The people that were fighting were not fighting because they had all this wealth and property and things like that. The majority of them were poor farmers, you know, that just mm -hmm. wanted to have the chance to be able to, to have the right and their freedoms and for their family to live in peace and to grow whatever vegetables and yeah. And hunt haggis. No, I'm kidding. No, you don't hunt haggis. Um, <laughs> but they were willing to fight and die for that. So the tombstones that you see are people that were willing to do all of that mm -hmm. for the opportunity for their family to be free. And that's partly why I love being in America as well, is because that's the whole idea that America was founded on, mm -hmm. was, was, was freedom and the rights of individuals to have freedom. And what are you willing to sacrifice to have that freedom? Whereas nowadays people are yeah. sacrificing their freedom for other things, you know. Mm -hmm. But that's what I love about being Scottish and the history of Scotland, is people were willing to sacrifice in order to be free. One of my favourite things that William Wallace said, he was speaking to the, the politicians in Scotland who were wanting to make a deal with the English and give them X, Y and Z and sacrifice the freedoms of some Scots that they as politicians could be free. William Wallace confronted them and said, there's a difference between you and us. You think that the people of this country exist to provide you with position, 
I think your position exists to provide those people with freedom and I go to make sure that they have it and that's what I love about Scotland. So I'm, I'm grateful that you asked me to do this podcast with you and I've enjoyed hearing your perspective about my <laughs> motherland um, and it's made me, you know, miss home yeah. as, as well and I look forward to going back and, and visiting again and yeah, I'm proud of my, my history and proud of where yeah. I come from. Yeah, yeah, you should be. Also, it's those kinds of people who then came to America who made America what it is. Yeah, for sure. We're stubborn Scots that <laughs> came over and were like, wait, what? Yeah. We came here so that the English could try to rule us again. Heck no. Heck no. <laughs> Heck to the no. And we're really mighty warriors for the revolution absolutely you know here yeah. as well and so i think they helped make america what it is and that's what lies beneath this is stones bones and shadows You can see photos and more information about the cemeteries we explore and find our sources at stonesbonesandshadowspodcast.com. Also, don't forget to check us out on Facebook, like us on Instagram, and leave us a comment. We love to hear from our listeners.